podcast number two. Um, today we're going to have a very important and special person from the local Seattle music scene um, and to have a chat with us. Matt Vaughn, owner of Easy Street Records and cassette tapes and compact discs and all that stuff. Um, he's been in the record business since, geez, probably late 80s. Um, I've known him back since he just got out of high school and was involved with, his parents were involved with managing Queensryche at the time and um, Shadow was playing. Um, that's when I think when I first met him and his sister Amy Vaughn. Um, so we've known each other over the years and I've watched him build up his business and also be a big part of the music scene in terms of helping people find a place to play, letting them consign music um, and helping bring up artists that he cared about. So among those are Macklemore and Brandy Carlisle and uh, of course the Sonics have played there and um, moi uh, as well as a bunch of other people that you may have heard of. Um, but it's uh, his record stores have a real uh, earthy vibe. Um, he even went so far as to have a uh, old Seattle City Light telephone pole mounted in one corner so he could put flyers on it. Um, it doesn't get any more real than that, staples and all. Um, but he's uh, spent a lot of time in music, supporting music, and is one of the originators of uh, Record Store Day, which is a big uh, boon to independent music stores all over the country. So, Matt Vaughn, it's a pleasure to uh, interview him, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Rainy Days Podcast number two. Thank you. Why don't we talk about a little bit about how you came to uh, be a music purveyor? Well, I think you know this, but my mom, you know, in the 70s and early 80s was in the music business, uh, which was which was uh, uh, pretty uncommon for women to be in the in. Uh, and how did that happen? Was she like a satellite person or? No, she, she was what you call an independent radio promoter. So she, she would work with the Pat O'Day's at KJR or the Steve Slayton's at KSW, and she would be hired by various record labels to shop their wares, shop their songs. So, you know, in the, in the mid seventies to uh, through 81, she was working for Casablanca, which is Kiss and Donna Summers, Motown, MCA, Arista. And it was later in the, uh, in the late 70s, 78 or so, she wanted to kind of get a little bit closer to not just radio, but working with a band and try to make something happen from Seattle rather than all these national and international acts with songs that she was uh, shopping. So she helped get a band called Striker signed to Arista. And that that was in 78. And that was, it was pretty uncommon for a band in Seattle to get signed. Hart had been one of very few in the 70s that did get signed. And yet there was still hope for uh, Seattle artists and musicians and bands because Jimi Hendrix is from here, you know. Quincy Jones is, you know, the most storied Grammy-winning artist of all time. There was there was certainly uh, hope that you could make something happen here in town. It just, we were, you know, we were up in Mongolia up here in the upper left. And 
somehow she was able to get Clive Davis to come out. 77, 78. Stryker did not have a name yet. Uh, they All they had was this demo, and they were going by the name of Randall Rosberg, which was Rick Randall and Scott Rosberg. There were four members in the band, but those were the two lead guys. And uh, Clive loved the demo he had heard, and he might have been in Seattle for you know a Barry Manilow concert at the same time. I'm not sure, but of course, here I am, you know, ten years old or whatever. I don't know who Clive Davis is. How did your mom describe Clive Davis to you? Well, I met him. He, him, and my mom, and two, and Randall and Rosberg picked me up from soccer practice. Clive Davis is in the passenger seat, and he is. Talking to Randall and Rosberg about, you know, the songs and this and that. And I remember it being a super cold day. I was a pretty shy kid. And I'm, I'm sitting uh, in between Randall and Rosberg. And uh, Clive says, you know, I like everything about you guys. But the name, the name sucks. We can't have it. It's one thing to be uh, Crosby and Stills or nobody knows who you guys are. You can't go as <laughs> Randall and Rosberg. <laughs> and something hit me and maybe it's because I was just come off the soccer field and I said what about striker Clive Davis turns around he's like that's it kid that's it <laughs> and, and Randall and Rosberg look at each other passing me by and they're like sounds good if Clive likes it and that be, that became their name so I got into the business at 10 years old <laughs> pretty good man that's good that's a great story <laughs> Uh, but what what that did do is it kind of put my mom on the map a little bit because hey she had just got this band signed, she con she continued to do some uh, uh, label work and and uh, radio work, and then she takes my sister and I in eighty one takes us to Skate King, remember Skate King? Oh no, never heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I used to play there all the time. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> and uh, there was a battle of the bands, and there was one band called Myth, and there was another band uh, called The Mob Clang. And Myth had this phenomenal four or five octave range singer, opera singer, really. And then you had these BMX Hesher kids in The Mob that were a bit younger, but they didn't have a great singer. But they were they were they were great musicians, and I recall my mom uh, somehow pulling four the four guys from uh, the mob out in the parking lot and said, "Hey, you know, if you could get that singer in that myth band, now you really got something." I had a stepdad uh, at the time who had a record shop on Bell Red Road, and it was called Easy Street Records, which is where the name comes from. It was more of a metal store i remember we had a wall of death and it would be like maiden and motorhead <laughs> and saxon <laughs> you called it the wall of death <laughs> and that's where i first worked uh and i remember todd rockenfield the uh brother of scott rockenfield was the drummer of uh of what would become Queenstrike, uh brings this tape in and says hey those guys got together and that was, uh, you know, in the first song we, I remember us putting on, I was there that day, was Queen of the Reich. This would have been 1981. Um, I was talking with Mike about how, because there wasn't, um, how should I say this? There wasn't really a, 
a metal scene ahead of ahead of us in Seattle or the Northwest, we all were getting Kerrang! Kerrang magazine and following English bands. Also, we were listening to a lot of ACDC from KSW, Outbreak ACDC back in the day. They were, they were like the first station that started playing them. So there were a lot of other influences that were not um, necessarily mainstream U.S. that we were kind of getting into up in our corner. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and there was there was no place to play either. You know, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, so I, <laughs> Skate King uh, was, you know, the all ages venue out there. There were two stages and you could play, I think, 45 minutes and then get off. And then the other stage would start up at the other end. You know, I think that was probably the first time of my generation with your mom working with Queensryche that we all were like, oh, uh, they got the next step up the escalator. Well, and they never, and they didn't play a show. Uh, they they got signed before they had even played a, a a real gig. We we went on a, a family vacation to London. Uh, I'm thinking we're there to see Big Ben and and uh, you know King's Road and all that. But really, it was a business trip. And my mom was shopping this tape around and took it to Krang. And uh, the, I still recall the journalist's name was Paul Suter. He was stupefied by this tape and the whole story around it all and that they had never played a gig and everything else. I think there was an eight by 10 is all he had and the cassette. And he did a uh, one, two page story calling them Rock's New Royalty. And it was in Kerrang! Magazine. And that is when everyone sat on their number two pencil and went, holy shit. These these guys out came out of Skate King. talking at you because I'm going to start a new subscription thing on my website. It's called The Homestead. And um, it's been a crazy couple of years and things have opened up a little bit and they'll probably open up more next spring uh, for more shows and more communication. But I wanted to find a way to get some of the music out that I've been working on um, in a way that isn't just broadcasting at people over social media. So I've decided to do a subscription service. Um, it's called The Homestead through my website, Danny Nukem Music. And if you sign up, you get uh, outtakes, you get songs that are recorded over the past year, um, as well as some behind the scenes. I'll be working on songs and sharing things like that. Um, I don't know about the farm picks. We'll have to see about that. Animals just won't cooperate. Uh, but, um, just wanted to have, be able to have a conversation and one that was not, uh, dictated by Facebook. So if you're interested in hearing, um, unreleased material or getting released, unreleased material before it's released, um, sort of a preview of it all, um, and some benefits for signing up, you get perks, but those, are, you'll find out about those on my website. One of the things I really, you know... I, I kind of see you as being at the height of your powers now. And I, I think a lot of your contributions to the Seattle music scene as a business owner and as I was trying to think of the word for it, and I came up with this word, uh, a maverick. 
of sorts. Okay. <laughs> I, I know you like country western, so I'm just going to throw that out there. Uh, but, you know, having your own identity, having your business identity mesh with your personal identity and your personal ethics and kind of like who you bring up, who you associate with. I mean, I know you helped a lot with uh, or enabled Macklemore um, via the shop and, uh, and also with Brandy, too. You know, it goes back 20-some years ago, um, but or even or even all the way to when I was a teenager. Being from Seattle, living here my whole life, when I, made, I graduated from Seattle Prep in 86. You know, there was a, a really great rec- record store experience throughout Seattle at the time. You know, you could go to the Ave and there'd be eight different record shops. or Cellophane Square, yeah. Cellophane yeah. Square, Fallout on, on Olive, uh, Peaches, uh, the Tower Mercer store was great. Uh, and, and, and a lot that I'm uh, Orpheum on Broadway. Uh, and to, to me, these are pantheons uh, of the, uh, uh, of that, of that early scene, the record store scene, uh, that I fell in love with in referencing, uh, how and why I've cultivated, you know, a bit of a scene here and why I've been and how I've been connected with so many artists, especially young artists as they're coming up. Brandy was a young artist, Macklemore, a young artist. And uh, of course, PJ were young artists one time too. You kind of touched on it. It's more about cultivating the sale than it is making the money, you know, uh, cultivating the customer. As far as the, having artists in the shop, when I first started doing in-stores, they made jokes about in-stores, Spinal Tap, uh, Empire Records. As a musician on tour, and you're playing a lot of small record stores. Yeah, yeah. They'll be like PA. Oh, it sucks. Yeah. Like, and there was <laughs> fluorescent light right on you, and you know, carpet and right. no no stage, and yeah. In ninety one, ninety two, three, I was on the road with Allison Chains and Grunt Truck and Screaming Trees. I was one of the tour managers on on that tour. I can recall Alice, Grunt Truck, the Trees, no one ever wanted to do in-stores. And here I was taking kind of offense to it because there I am a record store guy at that point still, even though I was doing this on the side. I realized, you know, you've got to, you've got to make it an experience as if you're at, at a real venue. Uh, so when I did start doing in-stores in those mid-90s at the West Seattle shop, that's what I tried to do. Now I had a small store, so I wasn't able to do it the way that I had been dreaming of. And then that dream came to fruition in 2002 when I opened the Queen Anne store down under the Space Mill there in Queen Anne. Right. And our opening week was Elvis Costello, a young barefoot guy with, uh, with an acoustic guitar, Jack Johnson, and uh, a guy that was the front man of the replacements, Paul Westerberg. That's how my week opened. That's a good uh, week. That's a good week. There was a, a, a young kind of folk Americana girl, Brandy Carlisle, who had spent some time in West Seattle. I knew who she was. She, when my cafe first opened, she would, she would be there with a cup of coffee and writing lyrics down. And then I'd see her busking and... Uh, so one of her first real gigs was the in-store at Easy Street. And there was maybe only 150, 200 people there. In the case of Macklemore, he had uh, put out these mix CDs that he, he would put on consignment. And he'd come in, he, w- he was 
a regular. He didn't necessarily have money to buy music, but he he was great. We liked his music. Never did we think that he was going to become the superstar that he became, but we really liked him. He was gregarious. He was working hard. Yeah. And uh, so he put these CDs on consignment and uh, he would call, you know, every Friday. How did I do? Well, we sold one. Okay, great. I can recall about two months, three months later with these every Friday is him calling and eventually got, got to 200 copies of sold. And then he, he released a poster, did a poster signing, and there was a line around the block to get this poster. The heist, the heist wasn't out yet. He, he, okay. he, was, he was recording he'd, it. He'd been releasing videos. He'd been he doing was, shows. He was he'd doing been the releasing videos. singles every four or five months, right? And with a video. As, as, as far as I'm concerned, it's the greatest DIY story to ever come out of the Northwest. No question about it. And you just have to think based on the innovation that comes from sitting in the basement and you know i mean bill gates and paul allen wrote their idea on the back of an envelope and sat in a garage right, right no right, no right, no right. different no different than mike mccready did or myself did you know right 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 greg vandy wrote a great book on uh, on woody guthrie and his time here in the northwest and you know what, what brought a guy like woody guthrie all the way out here you know from the Dust Bowl, what brought Pete Seeger out here? You know, what brought Ray Charles out here? They created their own kind of folk scene here in Seattle, along with Ivor Hagland. <laughs> yeah, I know. Acres but, of Clay, as I was Acres, talking about it last yeah. night. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the last line in uh, the uh, the uh, protest song. Uh, I'm I'm tired of taking it from the man. I'm going to sit here staring out at the Puget Sound and these acres of clams. That's where he gets that right. tagline right. that he's that the Hagelin family has used for years and years and years. Okay, and that all, okay. And I didn't know that. He he was a folky at heart, uh, and they had their time here in West Seattle. Ivor Hagelin was. Uh, lived out here, brought Pete Seeger and, and Woody Guthrie out here. But they spent their time up on on Madison, 18th and Madison. Uh, and they they coined the term Hootenanny up there. Uh, Wait a minute. That's not from yeah. Appalachia? No, no. I didn't know that. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. And then the replacement stole it. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and just down the street from that, from 18th, 18th and Madison on 22nd and Madison, you had uh, the uh, Washington Social Club, which is where Ray Charles and Quincy Jones first met. All are all around within the same time frame. But you think you think what what brought a 17 year old Ray Robinson, he, as he was known as, uh, from uh, uh, the South all the way to Seattle of all places, and you know. Uh, this, as the story goes, it's because, and it's, granted, and he's also blind, going on a getting on a bus or a train to get here, you know, uh, desperate to create his own music, and he felt that to do that, it was going to have to be in Seattle. There was a black musicians union here. You could you could work the the Yesler and Jackson. Now this is Jackson Street. 
Yeah. That was that kind of segues into something that I was really moved by over the past year and a half because it's been a crazy time with the pandemic. Um, Has it? And- <laughs> You're so centered, man. How do you do it? Kicking the ass is still a step forward, Danny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. That's how you have to look at it. Yeah. But the uh, the pictures I saw of Aaron Jones on top of the Easy Street van in the mm. video playing the Star Spangled Banner during the Black Lives Matter protest up at the junction around your store was just amazing. That was that was a great moment. I really, yeah, yeah. And I I called him two hours before that performance really? happened. Yeah. yeah, he we're neighbors. He lives two blocks away from me here on Alcac. Yeah. And uh, I says, "Hey, sorry for the short notice, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> well, we need <yeah>. you." <laughs> and, and I did not, I did not say, you know, play the Star Spangled Banner. Oh, you uh, did? No, okay. no. Uh, you know, he has a, he had a new record coming out. Yeah. Uh, he, you know, he's 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 got so many songs. Uh, I've never necessarily heard him speak on. Uh, on any of this, uh, on Black Lives and and what we were going through at that time and still going through, um, but I knew that he was the right guy for for the job at that point, and uh, he certainly was and still is, and he's on tour right now and yeah, he's the records the he's records doing, doing great. great, yeah, doing great. Well, we should probably tie it up. I don't want to keep you all morning, and I know Nikki has to edit all of this conversation, so she's going to kick me in the pants pretty soon. Uh, is there anything that you would uh, else you'd like to add, or any anything about the future or Seattle or things you've been thinking about? Uh, you know, I, I for me and for Easy Street, it's been uh, really. You know, you just can't. You just can't rest on your oars or the boat's going to sink. You have to continue to, to just work together as a team and as small business and uh, and with old friends and new friends to to get through this. And yeah, right. so it's it's really brought all of us together more. Uh, and that's what Seattle does. You know, uh, we've you know, we 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 did it during the, the early 90s, the late 80s uh, with music. When Chris, when Chris Cornell said, "Hey, we're doing Temple of the Dog," or Susan Silver says, "Hey, Alice and Chains, we we're gonna also bring Screaming Trees and Grunt Truck along," and uh, it, it, it's always been unity that has kept us together. And uh, you know, going back to the old Yukon days, to the Ray Charles days, the Quincy Jones days, the Sonics, the Whalers, Jimi Hendrix, and uh, we're gonna keep doing that. That's just in our nature. 